The mission of Ag Arts is to imagine and promote healthy food systems through the arts. We do this in a number of ways. For example, this podcast, Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land, and your help, your donation, funds our technical assistance, our website, our manager, and pays our rent here. We also do this through our Farm to Artist residencies. And on these residencies, artists do their work on farms, real working farms, and there they understand the issues of the farmers and reflect that in their art. Your funding keeps us alive. Please make a donation on our website, agarts.org, A-G-A-R-T-S dot O-R-G, or click the link in the show notes and hit that donation button. Amos, the owner of the Amish bird shop, stood outside near his purple Martin house pole. His heavy work boots crunched on the icy ground. Purple Martins only eat on the run, he said. There are a couple of them back now from the south, but the ground is still frozen with no insects in sight, so you have to feed them. Spring comes to buggy land on the wings of purple martins, these sleek blue-black swallows migrating back from their wintering grounds in South America. By some uncanny navigating ability, the elders arrive first to nestle into the nesting boxes where they have been the previous year. The breeding pairs come next to start their own broods. A glance down the road finds every Amish garden adorned with a purple Martin house, either a boxy, triple-decker wooden apartment building with starling-resistant holes or a cluster of plastic gourd houses hanging from a pole. Amos was equipped with both an apartment building and a few gourd houses. Two Martins swooped back and forth around the houses, stopping to alight on the perch, then off again in search of food. Centuries ago, Martin houses were a common sight. John James Audubon used to choose his lodging for the night by the condition of Martin houses. In 1831, he wrote, Almost every country tavern has a Martin box on the upper part of its signboard, and I have observed that the handsomer the box the better does the inn generally prove to be. The birds devour large quantities of grasshoppers, beetles, flies, and other airborne insects. They have a boisterous, upbeat song, and it's fun to watch their swooping flight overhead. Purple martins have a symbiotic relationship with humans and depend on our hospitality. They will only nest in clusters, mostly in human-constructed houses. Early American ornithologists reported indigenous people built purple martin houses, and in 1808, scientist Alexander Wilson reported hollowed-out gourds placed atop poles in Choctaw 
and Chickasaw settlements. World War II brought pesticides that took care of insects. Power lawnmowers clipped the grass growing over victory gardens. Fresh vegetables were shipped from California into grocery stores throughout the country. More fruits and vegetables were canned and sold from grocery shelves until their expiration date. Besides, purple martins had turned into pests in South America, where their excrement had piled up. And who wanted the job of cleaning out their messy nests every fall? Apparently, the Amish never minded the mess. They take pride in having their birdhouses spiffed up and ready for spring, overlooking their neatly tended gardens. Inside his shop, three of Amos's sons were busy building purple martin houses, the corners square, the perches securely attached, the wood painted white. A teenager with straight blonde hair, the bangs cut across his forehead with a clean swipe, pushed open the door and stood behind Amos. Behind the teenager came his brother, a 10-year-old, and behind him, a barefoot six-year-old. What do you feed the Martins, and how, I asked. Crickets, Amos replied. Crickets, I thought. Those insects come to the surface around here in August, chirping from every corner of every barn or shed. How in the world would Amos find crickets at this time of year? We have to send away for the crickets, Amos said. Here, I'll show you. I followed him into the shop where he took me into the back room with a small gas-powered refrigerator. See, here they are. Amos took out a small box filled with crickets. You send for the crickets in the fall, and they hibernate for the winter. You keep them in the refrigerator, not the freezer. I made that mistake once. Insectivores, purple martins eat bugs foraging in the air. They eat flying insects at altitudes higher than other swallows, sometimes from over 150 to 500 feet off the ground. They encounter prey, suddenly turning sideways or upwards. Then they speed up, flare their tails, and come in for the kill. They feed only in the daytime, often in pairs. Rarely landing on the ground, they swoop down to pick up small bits of gravel, to help them digest insect exoskeletons. But even a three-day cold snap could kill a purple martin. Without flying insects, they can soon starve. But how do you feed the crickets to the martins? I asked. With this, Amos said, picking up a slingshot. He stepped out of the shop, his sons trailing after him. Just then, Malin, one of my other neighbors, pulled up to the hitching post in his buggy. He hopped out and wound the reins around the post. Malin, who was always in a hurry, stopped and stared at Amos, who stood before his martin house, a cricket tucked into the pouch of his slingshot. Amos held the frame steady with his left hand, pulling back the bands with his right. Whack! Up into the air flew the cricket. Down dove the purple martin, missing the insect by a fraction of an inch. I looked at the disappointed Amos. 
thinking he would soon position another cricket into the pouch. Then I remembered that the Amish never waste a thing. So Amos dropped down to his hands and knees, searching for the cricket, his hands sweeping out in front of him, his knees inching along the frozen earth. His teenage son, then the 10-year-old, then the six-year-old, followed, all three on their knees, heads down, crawling along in hopes of finding the treasure. Next, Malin crouched down, his fingers sifting the stiff grass. Back and forth, the five Amish combed the ground. I swept the yard with my eyes, slowly thinking of the interlocking cooperation and dependencies of nature, how we were all caught up in the drama of food chains and life cycles, how one species attracts and shelters another, how one organism dies and another one lives, how brutal, how joyous this can all be. Here we were, three adults and three children, bowing down to the pull and tug of ecology and the larger design of the universe. I've got him, Amos called, holding the cricket up in his hand for all of us to see. Amos placed the insect back into the slingshot pouch, then once again stretched and released the bands. The cricket soared through the air toward the birdhouse, the marten doing his dance, swooping down, then turning up, flaring his tail, then picking off the prey mid-air. During the last three years, I began watching birds more intently. The creatures had always fascinated me, but during quarantine, I was stationary and the birds were the travelers, the ones who could take flight, lift up into the air and migrate to another continent. They were the ones who had freedom of movement, if not a loftier perspective on our world. Down below, we humans were left to deal with our mess. Most of us didn't care for the mess left behind by the purple martins, but Bruce, a free Martintown farmer, seemed to enjoy cleaning out their houses. He had a methodology and went at it almost like an archaeologist. In lockdown, I discovered the bird observation conference call and heard Bruce's story. First, he pulled the purple martin poop from his gourd, with the composting twigs, grass, and mud, placing the whole lot in a five-gallon bucket. Then he added water and swirled the mixture with a stick until any treasure that might be there fell to the bottom of the bucket. This year, Bruce found small mother-of-pearl buttons in his bucket. Buttons? Where did the Martins get the buttons? And why? Through some internet research and word-of-mouth detective work, Bruce discovered that Muscatine, a city located 35 miles east of us on the Mississippi River, was once the button capital of the world. At the turn of the 20th century, 
Muscles were dredged from the river and stamped and drilled with buttonholes in factories in Muscatine. The buttons were shipped to Washington, another nearby town, stapled to cards, and shipped out for sale. An old warehouse in Washington stored tons of old buttons and muscle refuse. Then a few years ago, the warehouse decided it was finally time to clean up their mess and discarded the buttons. Anyone could call them away for the asking. Bruce's neighbor hauled several dump truck loads of the discarded buttons to his farm and piled them around the house to help with water drainage. Bruce's buttons matched his neighbor's stash. After consultation with some ornithologist, Bruce theorized that the Martins were pecking at the buttons for grit to aid digestion. I pressed the phone to my ear and thrilled at the thought of both the birds and the buttons traveling through time and space. In around 1900, the buttons were transported from the river bottom near Muscatine to the warehouse in Washington. Then a hundred years later to a landscaping project, then to a gourd near Fremartintown. In the belly of birds, the buttons ring their way from Fremartintown to South America and back. I reflected on this winged journey, and in my isolation, my mind expanded. My days became global. I thought about the book of world mythology that was once on the shelf in the cupboard of the old Amish schoolhouse where I live. This is where we kept that book, a Mennonite woman said, opening the glass door to the cupboard where I now keep my dishes. The woman had returned for one of the schoolhouse reunions where people from all over the world, often three generations in one family, came to reminisce about their school days and a 600-foot square building. Bong, bong. I rang the bell, buggies and cars pulling into my pasture, bringing baskets of sweet corn and fried chicken for a lunch under a tent, photos, stories, a rousing chorus of the itsy-bitsy spider, and a reenactment of a game of button, button. Who's got the button? I had just moved to Iowa City from Colorado, one of the former teachers said. I needed a job, so I looked in the paper and saw positions here for K through 8. I was a third grade teacher, so I applied, had an interview on the phone, and was told to report on Monday morning. I drove down here the first day and found out that the job was K through 8. The Mennonite woman picked up the world mythology book as soon as she could read. She read and reread the book every chance she had, every year she could, until she graduated eighth grade. I love that book so, she said. I used to read it over and over again, delighting in the dramatic stories from world cultures. I told myself that when I grow up, I would travel away to all the places in that book. And did you travel? 
I asked. Yes, she said. And now I have an import-export business in Singapore. World mythology. A book that might even be banned today for its depiction of homo and transsexual gods, centaurs, sirens, and selkies, or of one culture dominating another, opened up one child's worldview and changed the course of her life. The child carried that book inside her like a tiny fragment of a mother-of-pearl button flying from one continent to another. I'm sure there were forces that wanted to hold her home, and I could feel those forces surrounding me in the schoolhouse many days these last few years. But when I stopped to look through the cupboard glass, I only saw a purple marten swooping toward me in the room. I am now part of the Iowa Writers Collaborative, joining the ranks of Pulitzer Prize winner Art Cullen, Douglas Burns, Julie Gamak, Bob Leonard, Laura Bellin, and more fabulous writers. The Collaborative is a network of Substack pages, each writer in his or her own realm, but all linked together. I have created two Substack pages. On the first page, Mary Swander's Buggyland, you will get transcripts of Buggyland monologues and interviews, photos, and extra commentaries. On the second page, called Mary Swander's Emerging Voices, you will hear young, diverse voices comment on current topics. Please tune in and subscribe at substack.com, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. And that brings our episode to an end. We were produced by Rick Brewer of Brew Ha Ha Audio Productions in our studios on Main Street in sunny Fremartentown. We had support today and would like to thank the Cinepid Fund, the Iowa Arts Council, the Warner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation, and the Calio Levine Fund, and all of you who have sent us individual private donations. We welcome your support. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe and never miss a podcast. Become a member or simply go to our website, agarts.org, and hit that red donation button. See you next time. Ha ha.